We're in 1 Kings 19 today. I'm going to read from verses 9 through 13. Uh, just before the verse I'm reading, um, the prophet Elijah has fled. Uh, his life's been threatened. He's running away. Come to verse 9. Then he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here? Elijah. When the elders laid out this year's spiritual emphasis, we decided to give three months to the foundational practice of solitude and to silence. Kevin warned us at the time that of all the practices that we intend to introduce and encourage, this one would be the hardest sell. We, we expect some pushback. In my experience, solitude is the classical spiritual discipline that Americans are most likely to regard as unnecessary. Yet Moses practiced it, Elijah did, so did Daniel, so did Peter, so did Paul, so did John the Baptist, so did John the Apostle, though it could be argued that his solitude was at least in part compelled. But even if none of those people had practiced it, it would be enough for us to know that Jesus practiced solitude, not once, but regularly, and encouraged his followers to do the same. If you want to grow spiritually, don't just do what Jesus and the great men and women of the Bible said. Do what they did. And Jesus did solitude. Solitude and silence, like all the other spiritual growth practices that we're encouraging you to do are not an end in themselves. You're not a better person because you practice solitude and silence. We didn't encourage you to read the Bible so that you could say you've read the Bible or so that we could say our church is a Bible-reading church. It's a means to an end. We haven't been promoting practices of prayer for the last three months so that you could mark prayer off your list. Well, I did that. Bible reading and prayer are paths. They're not destinations. They're means, not ends. And so is solitude and silence. The reason to intentionally enter times of solitude and silence, mark the word intentionally, is so that solitude and silence can enter you. So that your soul finds rest. So that you meet people from a position of stability and balance but most of all, so that you can experience the presence and the love of Christ who dwells in your heart by faith. 
That's St. Paul's language from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Now think about that for a moment, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. What's it like to dwell in your heart? What's it like for him to live, St. Paul's language again, in me? Is it a nice place to live? Clean and welcoming? What is your inside like? Is it like Grand Central Station? Just something coming and going every moment? Or is your soul like a single-parent home occupied by three preschoolers that the neighbors all call the Tasmanian devils? Is your soul cluttered with this month's pressing stuff and last month's forgotten stuff and last year's mystery stuff? Or is it like a pigsty of painful thoughts, angry feelings, moral filth? Here's the thing. Jesus is willing to come and dwell there anyway. He will take on the work of washing and reordering our souls. But if we never enter into solitude and silence, we won't often be aware of or cooperate with him. The reason to enter solitude and silence is so that solitude and silence can enter you. But you need to know up front that there are forces at work that will prevent you from doing that. And I'm not here referring to the devil. There's something in most and maybe in all of us that resists solitude and silence. Most people prefer to have their mind spinning like a top than to spend time alone with their own thoughts. I suspect that on a deep level, most people are afraid of themselves. They're afraid of what's there. Each of us knows, if we're honest and at all perceptive, that there's another me than the one most people see. Another me that I have caught glimpses of, but I don't really know. Is he a monster? Or is he a saint? It, if he comes out, will I disappear? Will I cease to be me? Down deep, we know that the biggest threat to who we are is who we're becoming. We're like caterpillars that fear the butterfly. You will probably not meet the person you're becoming, except in solitude and silence. And for that reason alone, people avoid it. They're trying to save their lives, their old lives, the ones they know, even if it means losing the new life that God intends for them to love. For many people, religion is one more distraction that keeps them away from God and their true self. Church activities and meetings and service opportunities let them be in God's vicinity without having to face him one-on-one. -on -one. It allows them to stay in control the French philosopher Blaise Pascal said that we seek diversions to avoid being alone with ourselves. It's the reason, he wrote, that people love noise and stir so much. The reason that prison is so horrible a punishment. The reason that people can't even imagine that solitude could be pleasurable. I've urged people to practice solitude who have absolutely resisted it. They're like, why do I need that? I'm alone most of the time already. But just being alone is not the practice of solitude that Jesus had. 
We leave others, we shut off the phone, the TV, the radio, the computer, and enter solitude so that we can be present to God, the God we say that we believe in. We don't enter solitude and silence to become better people. Though if you enter solitude and silence regularly, you'll probably become a better person. We don't enter solitude and silence to find ourselves. You know, if you want to go on a journey to find yourself, good luck. You're not going to do that in solitude and silence. You're going to encounter God. It's not you're looking for yourself. It's looking for him. And yet, we'll never find our true selves until we find God. In solitude and silence, we discover that the Jesus we believe in is with us, in us, is the heart of our own heart. If your soul is as wild and restless as the sea, remember that Jesus walks through the storm and he treads the waves. If it worries you that he'll find your soul full of foul things, remember that he can make a person clean without becoming unclean. He's not afraid of dirt or devils. St. Augustine, in the Confessions, admits that he came to realize that God was with him but he wasn't with God. Solitude and silence make it possible for us to be with God when he's with us, to hear him when he speaks, to respond to what he says, with the result that we become like him, that we become like Jesus. Would you like that? Jesus was with people. He didn't just share their space. He shared their lives in a way that was rare and beautiful and inviting. He listened to people. He was with God. He listened to his father speak and he saw him act. He rested confidently and joyfully in God's control. He didn't worry, didn't try to manage everything in one whirl of activity. One of the most notable things about Jesus, the portrayal of Jesus in the Gospels, is how relaxed he was. Did you like that? He never hid behind busyness or distraction. You know, I've often said, I'm too busy. Jesus never did. He was saving the world, but he was never too busy. He was present. Here are some signs that you need silence and solitude. You always have noise going on around you. Now think about it for a moment. You always have noise going around you. That may be a sign that you're trying to drown out the noise that's going on within you. You can't not check your phone or email. You just can't do it. You flip between one thing and another all day long. If your TV is not on, you're on another device. If your TV is on, you're still on another device. The times that you feel most alone and this one's a really significant one. The times you feel most alone are when you're with a bunch of people. That's a sign. You constantly feel like everything's up to you. Now, if you recognize yourself in that list, you might be thinking, maybe I need to try harder. Maybe I need to maybe read the Bible more. 
Reading the Bible is a great idea, but it is not a substitute for silence and solitude. You can do Bible reading in a way that keeps you in the driver's seat, keeps you in control, in a way in which you see what you're programmed to see and you ignore what you're not. That control is part of the problem. You need Jesus to be control in your life. Jesus to be Lord, to act, to speak, to comfort, to counsel, to guide, even to rebuke and correct. Silence and solitude create space for that to happen. Here's what silence and solitude can do for you. Enable you to stop using words to try to manage your image and control what people think. It is a huge one. How much more silent the world would be if we'd all just stop trying to manage what other people think of us by our words. Silence and solitude can help you locate your identity in Christ rather than in your work or your accomplishments. Silence and solitude can reveal unhealthy attitudes and ideas that hamper your obedience to Christ and retard the growth of spiritual fruit in your life. Solitude and silence not only allow you to see God more clearly, they allow you to see you more clearly. When, when you look down in, into a still lake, from, you're standing on a dock, for example, you see your reflection. When you look into a tumultuous lake, you only see the waves. Some people never see anything but the waves. Solitude and silence provide a setting where you can learn to recognize the Lord's voice. That is critical in the Christian life. If you are constantly surrounded by distraction, that will be much harder, maybe impossible. Now, when some people hear, you need to practice solitude, they immediately think, I've already got it. I'm, a, I'm by myself all day at work. Or, I'm alone all night at home. But people who are alone a lot may be the ones for whom this discipline is most important. In intentional solitude, we don't just withdraw from people, we withdraw from distraction. We don't get alone for the sake of being alone, we get alone for the sake of encountering God. You're not ready to be with people until you're ready to be alone with God. If you can't be content in solitude with him, you're not safe to be with people. You'll not be good for them. You'll probably feed off of them in ways that are not healthy, and they'll not be good for you. The passage I read to you earlier, in fact, all of the chapter 19, 1 Kings 19, is a case study of solitude. The prophet Elijah had been on this emotional roller coaster just when he thought that everything was finally going to work out, something bad happened, and it made him feel as if nothing he'd done mattered, that he didn't matter, that everything depended on him, and he wasn't up to the task. Elijah was depressed. He wanted to give up, wanted to die. He felt like a failure, and so he went into solitude. His reasons for going into solitude were not sound, but the result was good. In solitude and silence, he heard God speak, and that changed things for him. It also changed things for you. Elijah found a cave to shelter in and spend the night. This is verse 9. And while he was there, the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord may come to us when we're joyful. It may come to us when we're painfully depressed. But either way, it usually comes to us when we are alone. 
The word of the Lord came is a phrase that occurs in Scripture more than a hundred times. And it seems from Scripture that most of the time the word of the Lord came to someone, it came to them when they were by themselves. When the word of the Lord came to Elijah, it came first as a question. I think that's fascinating. Why does the God who knows everything ask a question? Surely not because he needs our answer, but because we need it. We need to hear what's going on. The question the word of the Lord brought Elijah was, what are you doing here, Elijah? That's the kind of question that comes to people who have entered solitude and silence. There are things in all of our lives that prevent us from changing. They get in the way of the good life God has planned for us. Those things are never on the surface. They're deeper. They are not external to us. We think they are. We think the thing that's holding me back is my boss or my paycheck or the bills or, or my, my spouse. But they're never external to us. They're internal. The confusion and fear and doubt that issue out of the disjunction that sin has created between our souls and God. That disjunction is deeper than our thoughts and our addictions, but it's from that place that they flow. In silence and solitude, we become aware of these places. It's painful, but it's necessary. Now, silence and solitude isn't always painful, hardly, but it can be. In solitude and silence, Elijah heard God's question, and an answer was dug out of him that had to come out You see in verse 10, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. You know, many people, and you may be one of them, have never heard their real voice. In solitude and silence, Elijah heard it, and it was racked with pain and resentment. And even though Elijah was a man of enormous faith, Read James chapter 5 sometime. His real voice was filled with doubt. If you read a story from the beginning, you'll hear a theme. And that theme is, I'm alone. I'm the only one left. I'm alone. The Lord told Elijah to go stand on the mountain in preparation for a God encounter. I wonder what Elijah was expecting. I think whatever it was, he thought it was going to be big. And, and, and big things did happen. Great, powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And this great big thing. And after the hurricane, there was an earthquake, another big thing, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after that, another big thing, a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And by the way, all three of those things in the scriptures are sim- symbolic of God's presence. But in all these big things, God wasn't there. I think Elijah might have been like us. Unless something big was happening, he didn't think God was in it. And I think unless something big was happening, Elijah didn't feel worthwhile. But after the fire came a gentle whisper. One commentator said this could be translated, a brief sound of silence. I'm not sure what a sound of silence exactly is. Um, It it could be a thin, so the words could be translated a thin hush. 
It was in the quiet that Elijah immediately recognized that the Lord was addressing him. He pulled his cloak over his face and he waited for what God would say. Perhaps he expected God to criticize him or to tell him that he was a failure. Man, you have messed up so badly. Instead, God probed the wound even further. What are you doing here, Elijah? Why does God ask the same question? I think it's because Elijah had to have the answer. What was going on inside him had to be exposed. So like a parrot, Elijah repeats word for word his bitter complaint. See, he'd been rehearsing this for a long time. Once that ugliness had been exposed, then the healing could begin. Elijah was in a place where he could change, where he could be healed. And he was in a place where he could now be used He could do his work in a way that wouldn't shrivel his soul, but enlarge it. So in verses 15 and 16, we read that God gave him three fresh assignments. Had God given him those assignments prior to the healing work that was done in solitude and silence? Elijah would have got the work done. He was that kind of guy. He would have gone and done it. But he wouldn't have benefited by doing it. And that's God's intention. God doesn't give us work to do because he needs us to get the work done. He can always get things done. He gives it to us so that we'll be blessed in doing it. Once the tooth had been pulled, once the healing had begun, Elijah was able to receive truth that he couldn't have gotten before. So verse 19, God tells him, you thought you're all alone? Look, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. If Elijah had heard this before, if God had said, you're all wrong, let me tell you the truth. Here it is. If, if Elijah had heard this before, he would have argued with God. Or he would, have ins- he would have said, okay, you're right, but what difference does it make? It doesn't make any difference. See, even the word of God wouldn't benefit him. And so many Christians are in a place where even the word of God just bounces off of them. Elijah needed to meet God in the deep place of his soul, and that required silence and solitude. See, it's ironic. The lesson Elijah most needed to learn was that he wasn't alone. The only way he could learn it was to enter solitude. In solitude, we learn there's something deeper and more foundational than our fears, than our sins. There is God and the wellspring of his grace. And we find that the disjuncture between us and God, there is a crucified Savior who will never leave us nor forsake us. We are never alone. But we don't learn that in the rush and bustle and the noise. Now, how can we apply this? We can choose to take part in the silence and solitude exercises that Kevin was talking about earlier. They're not going to be arduous. They'll be more like an introduction. You know, this is Solitude and Silence 101. Anyone can do them. Those who do them from a desire to know and please God will grow spiritually. 
So I challenge you to make the most of the unusual opportunity that the next three months are going to afford you. We'll remind you. We'll give you help as we go along. When you're given a spiritual exercise to practice, try it. Make up your mind now to participate. Don't wait until you're busy and distracted and you got to talk with this person and that person, get all these things done to decide whether or not you'll do it. You won't do it. But if you will practice entering solitude and silence, this is what I think will happen. You'll find that God's already there waiting. Waiting for you. And that will change you. Let's pray. Lord, it is um, a testament to your kindness, your goodness, and even your humility that you will come and live in a home like our souls. That when we invite you, you come even though we're a mess. Lord, would you reorder our souls? Clean us up. Make us a place that's fit for the king. And would you use our efforts in the next three months to make this happen? Lord, certainly for our sakes, but also for the sake of the one we call Lord, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing, and while we're doing that, guys, if you're helping with communion, would you come on up?